0: And I remember walking into the warehouses and we were pulling nine and a half, 10 year old whiskey straight out of the barrel. It was like 130 proof. And I remember putting it up and everybody's like, oh, this is gonna be great. And I, I remember sipping it and my, my lips immediately going numb. And I was just like, <laughs> what in the world?
1: This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So if you think there's a lot of bourbon on the shelf right now, just wait a few more years. The news over the past year has been flooded with a couple million upwards to a billion dollars in capital investments from everyone in the bourbon industry. And when the news dropped that Heaven Hill was going to open a new $135 million distillery that will produce 150,000 barrels a year, and that's in addition to their existing Burnheim distillery that already produces 1500 barrels a day, many of us scratched our heads and thought, who is going to drink all this whiskey? So I decided to reach out to Heaven Hill, and I invited Susan Wall to come on the show. She has a long 20 plus year history working in the whiskey portfolio at Heaven Hill. She's literally seen it all. We talk about what drove this decision from Heaven Hill to build a second distillery, some of the threats they see, how they're planning for everything in the supply chain, including barrels and labor. And we also talk about data trends and where they see the international market heading. And with that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Patrick Knoll, who writes me on fredminnick.com. I always enjoy your piece entitled Above the Char on Burn Pursuit. I was tasting some bourbon last night with my son, and he asked me when the industry started selling barrel-proof expressions. I really don't know the answer. It seemed to me that Booker's was probably the first. But I thought other bourbon nerds like myself might be interested in learning more about when barrel-proof expressions became commonplace. Great question. Great, great question. I love this because I get to get to draw some geekiness here. Uh, so... There were a handful of like barrel proof or cast strength expressions in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but they were pretty, they were pretty rare. The majority of the releases back then were were 100 proof or 107 proof, but uh, there there were a handful. They just were not very common, Uh, and the reason why is that the industry had this had a kind of a general consensus that. Something that was cash drink would get people drunk too quick and that could be a bad on the responsibility scale, you know, because they were always trying to fight off the people wanting to ban alcohol and any anything that would be seem as encouraging drunkenness, which they thought maybe a cash drink product would, would, would be deemed as, as a bad idea for the industry. But in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, we, we saw a growth of a uh, bourbon in Japan, and so people were trying to create products that would appeal to the to the Japanese market. Uh, both Booker's and Noah's Mill were coming out around the same time. Uh, you would later have um, you would have some products come from Wild Turkey, and a lot of these were really focusing on on the Japanese market and appealing to folks with that flavor profile. But to me, it wasn't it wasn't until that we saw George T. Stagg come out that it, it really appealed to a higher demographic and domestically, and people were really kind of pallet struck by George T. Stagg. While Booker's certainly ap- appealed to an audience, but it was George T. Stagg, in my opinion, that took cash strength to another level. And what what that did for the Cash Strength Rise is it it opened the door. For for distilleries to say, hey, you know what? What if we put out our very very best products in cash drink instead of cutting it to ninety or hundred proof? And so I feel like you know there are three brands that really kind of started the movement, and one sealed it and made it uh, legitimized it. So Booker's from um, from Jim Beam, Noah's Mill from Willett or Kentucky uh, bourbon distillers. A uh, rare breed from wild turkey. Those three products, I think, opened the door. But I think it was George T. Stag that showed the world that great super premium could be a cash drink and soon unobtainable. <laughs> so good luck getting George T. Stag today, and the market is now what it is. But so that's a great question. And I hope that helps you understand a little history of cash Strength bourbon. And if you have an idea like Patrick, be sure to hit me up on Fredminick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. And if I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers.
1: Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixirs Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea Welcome, everybody. We are back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today, and honestly, I'm really excited about our guest today because this is somebody I'd look forward to having on for a while, only because, well, A, she's been at this Heritage Legacy distillery for a very, very long time, so she's seen bourbon's trajectory and growth. But She's also the person that can give us some insight into the bourbon boom and what they're doing and for planning, because we've talked about all the time on This Week in Bourbon, which is our other Friday podcast, trying to figure out like whose who's crystal ball is more clear than ours, because <laughs> ours seems a little fuzzy at times. And everybody's thinking, is the bubble going to burst? It's got to be soon. Like in, inflation's here, all this
3: sort of stuff. And it doesn't seem to be happening just yet. Yeah, you texted me and said, hey, you're going to be here this morning. I was like, yeah. And he's like, I'm so pumped about today. And I was like, okay, all right, (laughs) Uh, because I tend to just show up to these things. And But uh, yeah, I'm just Just ramble on. And then you told me what we were talking about. I was like, this is exciting because we've all been speculating. You know, I grew up around this stuff, and no one gave a shit about it for the longest time. And then people did, and, you know, Bardstown people, we've thought the bubble's been hitting since you know 2008 and how, probably why hasn't toddy's expanded yet because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's no place that can contain guthrie's ego you know <laughs> like like toddy's can uh but uh no yeah i'm super pumped about today because uh you know you just go around barstown you go around frankfurt you go around anywhere and everywhere they're all expanding doubling tripling more warehouses more still capacity And it's exciting, but you're like, how do you determine that? Because you have to forecast so far in advance, you know, and we're kind of learning that through our brand. It's like, how the hell do you know what's going to happen in six to 10 years and then lay down the capital now and hope it all works out? So, and worry about an oncoming. So selfishly, I'm going to use this as a therapy session consulting, (laughs) you know, to uh, figure out how we can forecast and figure out things better. No, I'm kidding. We're just going to ride coattails. that's That's all it comes down to. So today on the
1: show, we have Susan Wall. She is the Vice President of American Whiskeys at Heaven Hill. So Susan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Good to be here. I'm excited to be here. This is a fun topic for me too, because I hear you saying like, what is the crystal ball? We use that term a lot. Like, oh, who has the crystal ball? We put our finger in the air and say, we hope that this is right. No, I'm just playing. We, look at tra- <laughs> we do look at trends and I always say like, when we're looking at what the future of whiskey looks like, it is 100% an art and a science and there's a lot more art probably even than science to it in a lot of ways so yeah I can
1: imagine we're going to dig into that pretty yeah. pretty deeply but before we do that I kind of want to give our listeners a little bit of background about you too because uh, we had, I'd kind of talked about the beginning of the show that you know you've been at Heaven Hill for for quite a long time 20 years at, at an organization is is quite a feat so even before then let's kind of talk about you know your introduction to whiskey and to bourbon Was Heaven Hill that first real introduction or do you have some sort of family ties to things like going on kind of talk about your background?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have family ties into the business. So I was born and bred here in Kentucky and specifically in Louisville. So obviously been around Bourbon my whole life, but didn't really know what I was getting into until I came to Heaven Hill. And so I interviewed for a job here. Here's the irony of it is I had, I had interviewed for a position in research for kind of a marketing research company in Evansville, Indiana. And I had taken that job and I was all set to go. And then um, I won't say I had cold feet. I had a fiance here in Louisville who decided to take a job here. And so then we were kind of like, oh, how are we going to make this work? And so I went and interviewed out at Heaven Hill. And I remember the first day that I interviewed, I walked into the conference room and the conference room at Heaven Hill, I looked around and there were there were whiskey and other product displays all around the conference room and I was like this is the coolest place <laughs> ever.
1: <laughs> when um, you're young you're just yeah, like working you're just at, like this is booths. the coolest
0: <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, and then I interviewed with Max Shapira that day and was a bit intimidated by him cuz he oh, asked sure. some tough questions but he was he was great but he he asked some tough questions and
1: Do you remember one of the tough ones he might have asked
0: you? I mean he you know he's such an He's such a numbers guy. You know, he came from a background in on Wall Street and so he was asking a lot of focused questions about kind of the analytics of the business and I just remember being like, I've been marketing, man. Like what what's <laughs> going on here? No. Um and so we we went on and they they hired me. And so my first real introduction to bourbon in particular I remember we had writers in for a Evan Williams single barrel vintage unveiling. And so this was back in the day, far before podcasts, (laughs) far before blogs. Um, This is like your traditional writers were in the business writing for whiskey magazines that had a circulation, you know, no bigger than the number of fingers I probably have on my hands.
1: Your Chuck Cowdery's and (laughs) stuff like that. That's right. Chuck
0: Cowdery's, um, John Hansel, like, Gary Regan, this was the crew that was coming in to taste whiskey with Parker. And I remember walking into the warehouses and we were pulling nine and a half, 10 year old whiskey straight out of the barrel. It was like 130 proof. And I remember putting it up and everybody's like, Oh, this is going to be great. And I, I remember sipping it and my my lips immediately going numb. And I was just like, <laughs> what in the world?
3: Well, at least you didn't spit it out. Oh, no, I didn't spit it out.
0: <laughs> but my lips went numb. And I was just kind of like, what are we doing? This is insane. And everybody's like, mmm, this is amazing, Parker. I, I taste marzipan and, you know, freshly mowed grass and tobacco and leather. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, this is insane. And it was like one of the more insane experiences and it goes back. You've heard the story probably from Other Heaven Hill people a million times, but I happened to actually be there when this happened. And Parker, we went back to a conference room, and Parker was like, "You know, they're all going on and on about everything they're tasting in these. And Parker's just like, "I just taste good bourbon." <laughs> and, you know and 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 I appreciated that because as somebody who's new, I didn't taste any of that stuff in it. And so over the years, we've refined our palates. We've done tastings. And now, I still don't get a lot of those flavors. I still feel like Parker does a lot of times when we're tasting, I'm like, this is good, this is bad. <laughs> not sure why it's bad, but we do not like this one. And so that's my introduction. That was my first introduction to kind of bourbon was with Parker. So not a better introduction to have, right? Like he- I
3: mean, it's drinking from the fire hose, I <laughs> would yeah. it's So talk about that, those, you know, in that time period, like. You know, where was whiskey at and where, like, what were some of your initiatives, like some of your goals, like at that time? Because obviously vodka was high. You're probably like Burnett's Burnett's uh, or, you know, flavored vodkas, this and that. Oh, what, man. so What was like the, this. the marketing so. plan for bourbon at that time?
0: I mean, listen, bourbon was the heart and soul of our company at the end of the day. And so while vodka was 100% on fire, it was still the one thing that we created was bourbon from, I like to say from cradle to grave like that. That's been kind of our heart and soul. So we still were always a bit focused on bourbon, no matter what was kind of happening in the other categories because of that. But I do remember we would go to very many different meetings, whether it was with distributors or with salespeople. And I remember being on stage and often having to say like, the back bar is completely white. You wouldn't say that today, right? (laughs) Like you would never say that today. But I remember having to be like, we have to fight for our space. And, you know, the back bar is just, it's all clear liquid and we got to figure out how to get in there. And so that has been a huge shift over time is just to see the on premise side of the business change. I mean, the back bar is brown now and you would never have thought that 20 years ago. And when you think about the consumer perception of whiskey and bourbon, it is. And the education level is just so dramatically different. And that's thanks to people like you all and others that are out there really talking about the bourbons day in and day out and having people like us on to be able to talk about what's happening is part of the tourism piece where we've been able to educate consumers along the way. But I mean, I remember sitting in a focus group probably 15 to 20 years ago and asking people to name their favorite bourbons. And at that point... Everybody always included Jack Daniels and Crown Royal as a bourbon. They didn't know any better. And then when you would ask them what their favorite or how old or how much age those products had, I mean, I remember sitting in and Jack Daniels, some people said seven years old and other people were like 15 years old. Like people had <laughs> no over the place. clue how much any of this whiskey was aged. They just didn't even have a clue. And today that is like, not only do they know how much everything's aged, they can tell you how it's made. What is the difference in the distillation process from distillery to distillery and the aging process? I mean, they can give you sometimes more information than sometimes we feel like we even have more. Like, how do you know that? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but
3: What's, what but secret but iPad did you <laughs> hack that you got yeah, all this information? Right.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's changed dramatically in 20 years. And in, and back then we did have a crystal ball to a few things. One of the things that I remember a colleague of mine that you've had on the show, I'm sure before, Larry Cass used to, I remember he would walk around Heaven Hill talking about rye whiskey, rye whiskey. We need to do something with rye whiskey. And I was like, Larry, why do you think we need to do something with rye whiskey? And he was like, all the writers are starting to talk about it. We just, there's something there. And, you know, we had a product called Rittenhouse Rye that we had had for years. We had Bought that in an acquisition, and and so we took that brand and we repackaged it, and we didn't we didn't do a great job repackaging it, but we re- repackaged it from something that had been very old to something that today would still look old, but not as old as very old. <laughs> and, and we and this was before the most recent package change, and so we repackaged it, and suddenly that brand it took a little bit. But suddenly it just started to grow a little bit at a time and a little bit at a time. And then suddenly we were like, oh, my gosh, there's really something here to this, this category. And I was like, I always say to Larry, it's the one area you actually had a crystal ball <laughs> on. You walked around here for years being like, rye whiskey is going to grow. And then all of a sudden it just kind of took off.
3: How do you take a brand like Evan Williams, you know, say 20, 25 years ago to become like, I guess now it's like the second or third, second, second yeah, leading brand and in- American, yeah. bar- you know, in bourbon. How, yeah, how do you do that?
0: It's just yeah, it is. <laughs> uh,
1: marketing dollars, persistence,
0: <laughs> a little bit of all of that. Right. Um, I mean, in this industry, as y'all know, one of the things that's most important is a strong distributor relationship. And man, that is an you want to talk about a changing landscape in twenty years? It's the distributor aspect. So. You know, it's a three-tier system. We sell to the distributor. The distributor sells to the retailer. And so that distributor sales team is really important. And so we've always had really strong relationships with our distributors, even when it was totally fragmented, meaning there were, there were different distributors in every state. And today, that's just not the case. Now there's two or three really big distributors and some smaller ones, but most of them are consolidated now. And that was, they were an important partner for many, many years in growing that brand and continue to be today. I think some other things we did on Evan Williams, I mean, people don't know this, but Evan Williams, 22 years ago or so, it had a different age statement and a different proof in almost yeah, every state. Yeah, it was a state. seven year, wasn't it? Yeah, it well, it was seven in some states. It was five in other states. It was different proofs in some states. It really grew up kind of meeting the need for that distributor in that market. And about 22 years ago, we said, you know what, we're going to put a concerted effort, make this a consistent brand experience, no matter where you go in the country. And we're going to give you, and we're going to put marketing dollars behind it. And that helped. But I think the consistency of the fact that we over deliver on that brand for its price point in terms of age, in terms of proof, in terms of flavor profile has probably been its biggest reason for success at this point. We just overdeliver in all those areas, and people have recognized that. You know, it's it's been awarded many times. Like you will see articles of people who say, "If I'm going to drink something in this price range, it's going to yeah, be Evan like Williams." Like for Middick, That it reason, like, uses it
3: as his base bourbon. Like, you for know, that's, any any competition that's like yeah. for any competition, like, how's it compare to Evan Williams Black? You <laughs> yeah, that's <know>? right. <laughs> you know, that's his standard, so that's pretty high remark.
0: Yeah, high remark, and and it makes sense, right? Because why would you pay more if it's? I mean, you have this great product in a bottle, why pay more if you can't make it taste better? So it's a good standard to have.
1: Yeah. And you came in as a brand ambassador, brand manager, correct? Yeah. And then now you've worked your way up to VP. Kind of Mm -hmm. talk about the different roles that you've had in your time there at Heaven Hill as well.
0: Yeah. Well, the irony is that at my time at Heaven Hill, I have spent the majority of the time working on the whiskeys. I did spend a little time working on some other parts of our portfolio, but very small amount of time. So we have since we've been there i mean the role has just evolved over time and we've evolved as a company we've become more sophisticated so when i started out was really more focused on 100% the marketing and sales promotion of the brands as the role has kind of expanded over time things like the visitor center started to fall underneath my role um which was exciting cuz that allowed us to really do some more testing of products with consumers really get inside consumers' heads when they come into our facilities. And then since then, I've also kind of been able to expand kind of the influence within the company to really be working more with our production teams and really understand what we need to do from a production side. So working on our new distillery that is going to be built out in Bardstown, kind of why do we need that? What's going on with that? Um, working with our FP&A team and others on our whiskey forecast. That's been a, a huge What's piece of the growth. Yeah. Financial planning analysis gotcha. team. Gotcha. There okay. we go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so working with them on our whiskey forecast, What is what does the growth of whiskey look like? How, how do we use these barrels over time? You know, we have 1.9 million barrels kind of aging in the warehouses today. It's a lot of barrels to keep track of and a lot of barrels to determine how we're gonna use. And so we have a small team of people that really look at that on a pretty regular basis.
3: Do you have any involvement in how it's like each barrel is gonna be allocated to, towards certain brands? Because you all have, what, one match bill about a ton of brands that are go with right. that match bill.
0: Yeah, so, yes, I do. Um, we've been working really hard on a couple of different areas. So one thing is our our sensory, really trying to understand exactly which warehouses produce which types of whiskey. And is there any kind of trend there? And that's still in its early kind of infancy stages, but that's something that we've been working on. And yeah, I work directly with, there's about five or six people that we work directly together to kind of understand how we're going to use the whiskey inventory over time. And you guys know, when we're looking and thinking about whiskey, we're thinking about know, we have brands that are from four years old to 23 years old and 25 years old. And so that is a lot of crystal ball. (laughs) It's a big crystal ball you have to have um, to predict something over 20 years. I don't know that 20 years ago, as I was sitting in that focus group, hearing people say, oh man, uh, Jack Daniels is aged 15 years that I would have been thinking in another 20 years, people were going to be as educated as they are today. I I didn't have that crystal ball. So it's hard to have a crystal ball on forecast at 20 plus years from now. But I think that, you know, we do a pretty good job of trying to understand and really hone in on which of our brands seems to have the consumer interest and what is growing and and what can we do to kind of help get more people to come to that brand, make it in their consideration set and kind of see what they have. So we work very hard on it on. And we're constantly looking at the whiskey inventory. Yeah. Constantly,
1: we're looking at ours too. We, we have, our
3: spreadsheet isn't near as big as theirs. Though. No, no, we have like like a one thousandth of a cell. <laughs> they do. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned uh, the visitor center using it as research, like to learn and understand consumers. What kind of like, I guess, trends or data have you all learned from you know that that facility?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I think that we've learned pretty clearly from that facility that when it comes to traditional bourbon mash bills, they're going to sell quickly. Sometimes, as you all might be feeling, too quickly. Suddenly you're like, wait, what's going on? Like, that is faster than we thought. The You Do Bourbon tour that we now have out at the Heaven Hill Bourbon Experience, where you can go bottle your own bourbon, that is
1: I heard it's going gangbusters. It's
0: going gangbusters, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see consumer psyche and, and kind of behavior because we have four different products there that you can choose from. So you go into the tasting, you taste four different products. And our hope is that you decide which product you like and which product that you then want to bottle. And they are of different mash bills and they are of different... Uh, ages and they're different, mostly, they're mostly barrel proof, but they're, and they also have different price points associated with them for the most part. So, you know, our hope was that people would go in and really taste what they like. Clearly we have, we have a, a really big contingency of flippers out there today as, as everybody knows. And so there's a little bit of that that happens obviously, but it's been interesting to see, like the pure consumer who comes in just for the taste experience, like what they gravitate towards. And so we've had a lot of people gravitate towards the older whiskeys and kind of specialty whiskeys. That's a little bit of that flipper mentality. But we also have had our wheat whiskey has been something that people have been really excited about out there. Our Bernheim barrel proof, which we sell there, people really gravitate towards that. I think that wheat profile is a little bit softer, but with the barrel proof gives you enough robustness that people can really get excited about it. And so that's been kind of fun to see as people have, have gone there. Uh, in addition to that, one of the other trends we've noticed is, and we've been working through, is we have a product called Heaven Hill Bartender's Handshake. It is a product that's a basically a ready to drink old fashioned. And so seeing how some of these ready to drinks are working in the bottle um, versus can versus other areas has been something that's kind of interesting to, to see with consumers. I mean, we had a lot of interest in it so far. It's using our orange Curacao bourbon, which is a little different and higher end than some of the other RTDs that are out there. So that was some of the bourbon that used to, was in Parker's at one point in time. And so we're using that to kind of do an old fashioned and then we've had a lot of good excitement around that too.
1: Do you kind of look at this as a, as a testing ground for some things before you can take it out to a broader market?
0: Yeah, we definitely look at it as a testing ground before a broader market. We also, you know, sometimes we, in our barrel inventory... We lose barrels sometimes, you know, like, you know, I mean, occasionally we, or we have just a few barrels of something and we're like, when I say we lose barrels, we don't really lose them, but um, they either don't get used for a certain project or we tested something and now we only have three barrels and what are we going to do with that? So the visitor centers is a perfect opportunity to kind of give those consumers something new that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere else that we don't have enough of to really sell broadly anyway and give people a little bit of taste of something different. And so we do that through our heaven Hill select stock. Um, that is exactly what that product is for. It is for small production items that we have had in our warehouses that just we won't have mass production of. And so we're able to kind of push it out through the Heaven Hill Select stock, which is cool for consumers because they get to taste stuff that otherwise might never have made it to the market. It may have just been blended off into something else until we had major production of it. So that's pretty cool.
3: I want to go back to that blend your own, but you're kind of like fascinated with the Bernheim. Forgive me, I haven't been through it yet, but uh, Mm -hmm. do they do this blindly? Like, or are they educated on what they're drinking? It would be curious to see like like if they, you know, had no idea like exactly what they're drinking and then they picked, you know, what they bottle and then they're like, Oh, it's this or that, you know, that would be versus like you said, flippers going in there like knowing, okay, I'm going to get Elijah Craig barrel proof no matter what.
0: Yeah. They don't do it blindly admittedly. So they do um, get to see what they're tasting. Now we have done blind tastings with retailers before. That's part of our kind of Elijah Craig, barrel program is that, you know, because we have different ages, we wanted to kind of test out on the barrel proof program as we were migrating to an Elijah Craig small batch that's, you know, eight to 12 years old. And then you start to take that to a barrel proof, uh, private barrel program. Obviously those are single barrels, so they're not mingled eight to 12. They're gonna be an eight year old barrel, a nine year old barrel, 11, a 12, a 10. And so when we started that program, Up for Elijah Craig, we asked our sales teams when you go in and you sample the retailer on this, we don't want you to tell them the age. Like that's imperative in this that you not tell them the age. And the reason was we didn't want kind of that psychology of older age, it must be better to kind of affect. How people were viewing the whiskeys and kind of wanted to prove out the theory that, like, you can have great whiskey at any age. And it has proven out over time. Like, we will have people that taste an eight to 12, and they are shocked when we reveal the ages to them that oh my gosh, I thought for sure I was going to like the 11 or 12 year old, but I really like loved the eight year old or the 10 year old. And so they shock themselves Yeah, based on blind tasting. So blind tastings are super important to really understand where your like palate lives.
3: I think that money spot for that Elijah Craig Mashpool is like eight to 10. Like, oh. I mean, 12 is obviously, but I think it's like perfectly balanced. You know, you start getting 12 and a little older. It's just, it gets a little more tannic, mm-hmm. a little more oak, but um, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a fascinating experiment. I think you should then be cool too on that blend your own experience. You did just like one weekend where you were like, we're um, going to see like what people do. <laughs> throw these people you know? for a loop. Yeah, that'd I, be cool. Just, I'm just interested to see what would happen.
0: Yeah, no, well, we might have to, we might have to do that. I like it. I like the idea. Yeah. <laughs>
3: make sure you get
1: paid for that idea. Right? I
0: know.
1: <laughs> well, just give me your crystal ball. We'll call, there we okay. <laughs> yeah. we'll call it even. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, a amazing kind of hear the journey that you've gone through in your career and how you've seen these brands grow and you've seen how bourbon's grown and you've kind of, as you said, seen it from the clear wall now to the brown wall and, and everything like that. So I think this is a good time to start talking about where are you all starting to see this shift? I'm assuming that the problem one of the the biggest reasons to start looking at well maybe we just need another visitor experience because all of our tours are booked up every single day the you do bourbon experience you got to book it you know a week or a month in advance or whatever it is so from a tourism perspective i can totally understand that now the other thing that that is uh, definitely a part of this that i want to make sure i get my notes out to say it correctly so back in april of 2022 it's when heaven hill announced that the plans to open up a new 135 million dollar distillery that'll be opening in by 2024 you know construction is going to start at some point but the initial production starts at 150,000 barrels a year
3: and over time will the capacity to ramp up to 450,000 so and, to, but, and this is coming off a addition of the Chavale you know the burnheim facility too which right. is doing roughly around 100
1: to 120 something 1500 like that. a day right 1500, yeah, 1500 a day oh, okay a day. Yeah. yeah okay so yeah. that number and you know you can do the math out there <laughs> uh so kind of talk about what you all were seeing in regards of either market, demand, anything like that that said, all right, it's time to go ahead and use some of the Shapiro money and, and throw it down and <laughs> you know, build for the future.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things that have played into this. I think that we have definitely continued to see really strong growth across the core of our portfolio. So whether that's Evan Williams or Elijah Craig, in particular, those two brands have been really strong. And in, in that same period of time, while we've seen growth on those brands, we've had to restrict the growth of other brands in order to make sure we can service the growth of those brands. So brand, a brand like Henry McKenna Single Barrel, boy, wouldn't you like to see that on the shelf more often,
3: oh, well, right? <laughs> thank
0: God Fred's
1: not here. We could all punch him in the face for that. Right, yeah.
0: right. Um, and so you know, with that award, the brand took off. And now nobody can find it on the shelf, and we would love to be able to provide it on the shelf. It's one of the brands that we—I mean, you hear it all the time—but we kind of think of it as like the hallmark. It has every attribute you could want, possibly, in a bourbon. It's single barrel, bond, bond, ten years old. We can't provide more of it right now. We've had to restrict it um, because of our whiskey inventory, and. So as we look at the whiskey inventory and we look at what we've done at Bernheim, one of the major reasons for needing a new distillery is that we're landlocked at Bernheim. We have now expanded that facility to 1,500 barrels a day, and that is where we're at. We can't do more than that there. And so what does that mean for us as we go forward? And so we decided we needed to start looking at this. I mean, really, we started looking at it probably five or six, if not longer ago, and we Kind of like you all, the crystal ball piece. You're like, you know, when is when is the tide going to turn on bourbon? What is that going to happen? And we just haven't seen that happen yet. And so we decided to build out in Bardstown, which was great because it's a homecoming to our you know roots in in Bardstown, and really bringing it back to uh, really very near our. It's it's just a few miles away from our plant there and our facilities and warehouse facilities there. So we're excited about that. And we think that, you know, when you look at at bourbon today and the way tourism is creating what was Napa in in California for wine, you know, we anticipate that even if it does start to plateau off, it's going to plateau off at a much higher space and place than it would have prior to any of this growth that we've been seeing. Not to mention the fact that when you look at our portfolio, only about 3 to 4% of it is in international. So we that still have a huge <laughs> like opportunity. How, how much
3: is you know, domestic versus international currently? Yeah.
0: yeah, it's a small, small percentage. And so we think we still have a really major opportunity in the international markets to also service with our liquid. And so we need more liquid to do that. And as you look at kind of our inventory overall, I always say when we're trying to manage the whiskey portfolio, you know, it's (laughs) unlike any other Kind of industry out there. I always it's it's funny because we'll we'll start to see momentum on a brand, and it's like, oh, this is awesome. You know, everybody like listen. You want to be successful, right? There's not much you don't want to be successful within life. So when you see a brand growing, you're like, this is amazing. This is awesome. Love the consumers that are coming to these brands. Sell, sell, sell. And then all of a sudden, you're like, no, 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 no. Pull back, pull back, pull back. We're not going to have enough. Like right. wait a minute, pull back. Like so, it's just it's such an odd. Part of of the industry that you're constantly like playing whack-a-mole. We say, you know, as soon as you handle one issue with the whiskey inventory, okay, we now have enough age of this whiskey. You've created another issue over here, and you're just constantly trying to kind of manage those issues as we look at the inventory over time. And that happens. I mean, we look at the whiskey inventory probably on a bi-weekly basis for sure, if not daily basis. I mean, we have somebody who his pure job is to manage the spreadsheets and kind of analysis of where we are from a whiskey perspective. And that job just really became available in the last year. We've needed it for far longer than that. But it just became kind of available this last year. And he's amazing. And he's working with us as the brand team on literally a daily basis to either set barrels aside for certain projects or to... Um, we know we have special barrels here. And it's a... Think about 1.9 million barrels And not only are they 1.9 million barrels, but we have six different mash bills, seven, eight different mash bills, really more than that now with the Evan Williams bourbon experience creating lots of different mash bills. And we have different projects that we want to save certain barrels for. And so it's a, it's a tracking nightmare, much less. I, eh? would say, I don't
1: envy that person what yeah. not whatsoever. I was yeah. like, I, I keep track of our spreadsheet and it, it's nowhere near how big that is. I couldn't imagine even what it was like to even go at first and go, all right, we need to go and make sure these barrels are actually in inventory and have to go through and <laughs>
3: check serial numbers on every single warehouse and stuff uh, like that too. Yeah. So like, so when you're going through this and you're like, obviously bullish what were some of the like threats though you see to like okay maybe we shouldn't do this
1: if you're anything like me then you can't get enough about bourbon and that's why i'm a subscriber to bourbon plus magazine bourbon plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon the farmers who grow the grain the distillers who labor over the process, and the people, like you and me, who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. From TikTok to Instagram and beyond, and get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning twenty-four-seven help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/Bourbon, all lowercase, and go to Shopify.com/Bourbon to take your retail business. To the next level today, shopify.com/slash bourbon.
3: So, when you're going through this and you're like obviously bullish, what were some of the like threats, though, you see to like, okay, maybe we shouldn't do this?
0: Yeah. Well, I think one of the big threats right now that I personally see is, you know, when you look at the trends in just distilled spirits in general, you see that brands and categories, I should say, grow over time, but they have, you know, pretty much a 10 to 20 year, around 20 year life cycle, and then things start to switch. And so we're, we're, Not hitting that yet, but we're approaching it right in the next few years. If you use 2007 or 8 as your barometer for when the whiskey kind of boom, bourbon boom started, which some people use, I tend to think it was before that. But a lot of people use 2007, 8 during that kind of recessionary period, and as we came out of that, it was just like whiskey all the time. Then we're you know not there yet, but you know you can see kind of the horizon. So that's one thing that causes me to have a little bit of concern the probably bigger aspect of that is quite honestly, the pandemic. Anytime that you look at a a huge impact driving kind of effect on the economy and people's psyche, like a pandemic or a recession or any of those types of things, it tends to drive different consumer behavior afterwards. And so you look at it and think, Will this drive something different? People had an opportunity to be at home. We saw at home, you know, cocktails become very, very popular during that time. Was that enough to sustain it afterwards? Or are they going to think, eh, I've done it. I've been there. I'm going to move on to something a little bit right. different one, now.
3: Like during the pandemic, one of your old biggest sellers so was like 175s of Evan Williams. Right. You know, people just loaded up. on. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> It's a party at home, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
0: And that continues to be an um, area where you know, during the recession, if this has not been named yet a recession, right? But it has every single check the box signal of a recession. So the, we would anticipate that we're going to see some of that during the recession too, kind of a, a, a just like during the pandemic, moving back to brands you trust at larger size formats, trying to get more for your dollar, um, knowing that you're going to, you trust it, you know, you're going to go home and be happy with it, not exploring quite maybe as much for some level of consumer. You know, we didn't see during the pandemic that exploration took a deep dive. And so there is still that consumer out there today and will be during the recession. This is a, depending on how a recession moves forward, we anticipate there's going to be a very big divide of who's affected by it. And those top level income consumers are still going to be exploring whiskey, we feel like today and continue to do so. And that exploration is keeping us all in business. And so mm-hmm. we appreciate that. Like, and, and there's so much to explore. We did an innovation tasting on Tuesday um, with a good number of people. And we were looking at all these different kind of innovation items that we have coming down the pipe. And people were like amazed at how different some of these products taste. You know, one of the things we really looked at in that tasting was the difference between our pot still whiskey and our column still whiskey and just the different flavor profiles we we I had we, no
3: idea heaven hell even owned a pot still well that's the uh, evan williams
1: experience yeah, yeah. Evan williams oh okay experience. i was about to say i was like i'm, I'm like going through my tour at bernheim in my head I'm going around i was like i don't remember seeing a pot still anywhere in there no.
0: <laughs> yeah i was no. like, two I remember, big
1: ass columns yeah, <laughs> I, was, I think there were three there was like yeah, yeah, yeah it was just yeah. like i was like looking around yeah and they're they're super loud but yeah i was like never mind keep going
0: yeah so it. we took two whiskeys same age same proof from two different facilities and just said, let's, let's taste them side by side. The vast difference in those two products was huge. I mean, and as somebody who at Heaven Hill has grown up on our column still, very robust minty profile whiskey, um, to then taste something off of a pot still that tastes so dramatically different. It's hard for us even to wrap our heads around like, who's going to like this? Is this going to appeal to a certain type of consumer? Um, Because it tastes dramatically different. You know, off a pot still where you're hand cutting, you know, the the heads and tails, you get in the way that it comes off of the still, it doesn't come off as consistently at the same proof profile. So you're getting a lot more just flavor coming through that then goes into the distillation process and then the aging process too. And so it comes out with just a lot different taste profile. And so there's still so much for consumers to explore today. Like that's one of the things we're super kind of excited about for
3: consumers. Over there, Jody's mad lab. <laughs> that's Jody's right. Really it's
0: absolutely so, his mad lab.
3: <laughs> so how have how the the European tariffs, you know, going away, how they changed your all's forecast or mindset for, you know, expansion also? Or did that have any impact at all in that decision? Um, Or is that hopefully just for all domestic?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, did it have an impact in the decision? Sure. I mean, it obviously impacts the financials, but did it have a major impact? I would say no. Only because our percentage of international whiskey was still just such a small piece, or the international business was still such a small piece. I think for us at Heaven Hill, we're still working through kind of what does our international plan look like? And we've built this great foundation over the last several years. um, But we know that we have some a little bit more foundation building to to do before we can get to a point where we can really start to turn the lever on that up to a, a higher point. So did they have an impact Sure. Um, was it a major impact because of the infancy of where we are in that area? Not as much as, as you would think.
3: Gotcha. It's still
1: it interesting. It's still interesting to hear that Heaven Hill's uh, quote unquote infancy into anything. <laughs> yeah. And we've been
0: point. international for forever, by the way. It's just that we've never really. Um, set this foundation for for huge growth. There, it's been kind of pockets of where we see opportunity. It's been much more opportunistic over over many years. So
1: for sure, I think one of the the things that I look at, and and by the way, I love this information. I'm always just going to try to play devil's advocate to try to figure out like and, and ask the hard questions of maybe what other people are thinking about too. And right now, you have a big shortage in barrels, and that's and wood and kind of those raw materials. Now, going into saying, all right, we're going to now double down, we're going to do 150,000 barrels a year, increase to 450,000. It also also kind of seemed uh, uh, harmonious. I guess you could say that Brad Boswell and ISC talked about some expansions that they're doing. So was a lot of that sort of in unison to say, hey, Brad, it's time for you all to start ramping up production because we're going to need a ton more barrels.
0: Absolutely. I mean, obviously, you got to look through the supply chain and say, how are we going to do this? And you know, working with Brad and working with some of our other barrel suppliers, we kind of went to them and said, listen, this is, this is a big opportunity for us. And this is what we're going to do. How do you help us get there? And it wasn't just Brad. I mean, we had to go work with the Bartstown city to understand how they can help us get yeah, there in terms say, of water that's, that's usage and other areas. So, you know, there's still a lot to be understood about the new distillery. Um, we've, we've done a lot of due diligence before that, but it's it's working with all of those partners to understand it because everybody's important for us to get that whiskey out there and really age the way we want to. So um, you know, Independent Stave has been amazing in working with us. They they always are, and so have our other suppliers like McGinnis and and so forth. So they all have brought kind of their teams together to say, how can we get here? What do we need to do? And we've worked with them on the White Oak Initiative and in other places to try to help really create more oak for us in the future. I mean, not only is it important for us as a industry but when you think about what an oak tree does for the environment how many species live in that and we we've got to keep it healthy and so we've really worked with them on a couple of different initiatives to certify loggers who some of these loggers this has been a family business for them for generations so it mirrors so much of our company and what we do but they haven't always been certified by the state and how you can do sustainable logging. So how do you go in and make sure that the forest is healthy when you leave it? What are we trying to achieve when we go and do that? And so we've been working to allow them to get that type of state certification, which is hopefully helping in the future, to give us um, a better and more more plentiful oak supply as we go forward.
3: You talked about you know how having a twenty year you know life cycle on a customer and this and that, What, I guess, data helped you like push past those fears to say like, okay, that's not a concern. We're going to go ahead and move forward with this.
0: Yeah. I think there's a couple of different things. I think as we look to the consumer psyche today, we're still seeing that exploration in whiskey. And that has been really key to the explosion of the number of brands that are on the market today and the the growth of the category. And so we're not seeing that slow down as of yet. Um, We're still seeing people who are going in and saying, how can I taste something different? What is different about it? And so that is just, it's a huge part of the growth that we've seen over the years. The other piece that I think has been pretty important is also seeing that overall whiskey has continued, the pie has continued to get bigger. Even during the pandemic, while it was a little bit um, shakier, and I think really, I think one of the things when you look at numbers for the whiskey category, if you're seeing declines in the category for any certain brands, I think the thing that's helped us get over it is that the last two years, the numbers have been so erratic thanks to so many supply chain issues. Like when you think about the lack of glass for for many of our ourselves, as well as many of our competitors, the numbers aren't real just yet. And so we've had to kind of cite go through the numbers and kind of decipher what what's really happening. And so we still feel like there's a lot of growth out there based on some of those kind of understanding of just the underlying things that are pushing those numbers to look the way they do today.
3: Do you look at your competitors because they're expanding too and get concerned like, okay, are we all gonna just flood the market? doing this together. You
0: sure, know? you can't help. I mean, you can't help but have that thought occasionally, right? When you look at the history of bourbon and you see um you know during the 19 like just past the 1970s into the 80s when that surplus of of bourbon was out there and whiskey and prices plummeted and people were blending things and doing kind of crazy things, you can't help but be a little bit like will history repeat itself and at what point will history repeat itself? Uh, I think you know, things have changed a bit in terms of how people are drinking, right? You know, we always say people are drinking quality and not quantity now. But, you know, I often say and, and get concerned a little bit about when I look at people's back bars um, and I look at them and think, how many more whiskeys can they add? I mean, like, <laughs> we have question. quite a bit, <laughs> right? And you're,
1: you're speaking to the audience that is probably those those types of people. They already, they already own 30, 50, 90 190 bottles, and it's it's. how much more do we need?
0: Actually, absolutely. And I look at those pictures and I, I see people send them in and I think, wow, wh- when are we going to actually drink all of this bourbon <laughs> that's sitting on our back bar? We need people to be drinking it as much as we need them to be collecting it. Um, but as of right now, I think there's still enough exploration out there that we're going to continue to to see
3: some growth. Yeah, the good thing about us whiskey geeks, even though we have every bottle, we always want to taste what's next. Uh, right? <laughs> <That's true. laughs> because the bourbon bourbon, I've always said it's the perfect product because there's so many variables that go into one barrel that can make it vastly different from and it's a true unicorn every time. So it's like you never know what's, you know, what we, you're missing out on. John Little said best, we have yet to taste the best you know, barrel of whiskey. And so, you, you know, it's like always, it's always out there.
0: Yeah. So. And I remind myself that the reason people have so many of those bottles on the shelf is when you want to do a comparison to some of the ones that you tasted before, you still have to have that whiskey, right? Exactly. So you're like, Hey, I want all of that. So I can compare it to one another.
1: So the other question looking at the growth of this is of course, your need warehouse space. And warehouses today are, of course, you know, you got you to gotta have the land. I'm not too sure where in Bardstown you plan on having all these new warehouses. You Bardstown go, like, Road. You, you know, <laughs> it's like you're, you're going to probably need even more than that. And to kind of look at this from the the consumer or maybe the, the Bardstown residential aspect Have they been okay with everything going into it? I know right now Sazerac is fighting a huge battle with their expansion and trying to find residential places or just places just to build more warehouses. How have you all been able to kind of forecast that and or try to mitigate or work with the city on that too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we've obviously built a lot of warehouses over the last several years, um, mostly off of Bardstown Road in our Cox's Creek Barrel Preserve area. And we're continuing to build across the street from the original site and another um, site across Bardstown Road right now. So that is, you know, we have looked for areas that we think can support the growth of that many different warehouses with such a large footprint And we've also looked for areas that we think um, we can do that in a way that will be beneficial to everybody around it, where we won't have some of the issues that Sazerac is facing today. It is a concern and it's something that we're continuing to look at. It's expensive to build a warehouse, right? And it's a huge amount of capital that is going back into our whiskey portfolio to continue to see it grow and we do have some concerns about it. So we are looking at some alternative ways in which we can think about our whiskey portfolio and the way that it's aging and how we can do that in maybe a bit more of an efficient uh, way. We have so many different warehouse locations. We have six locations and so many different styles of warehouses from yeah. brick to to our traditional warehouses. And you know, we used to have this theory that our brick warehouse is down at Bernheim. Um, and I won't say who who generated this theory internally to the company, but it was somebody who had a very traditional viewpoint of whiskey. And we used to say, oh, those don't actually produce that grade of whiskey. Like internally, that was like a folklore thought that kind of was around. Like, oh, we don't want to pull whiskey from Bernheim.
3: That's because- where all the exports are. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> 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 but brandy. There, yeah. uh,
0: but over the years, what we have discovered is that that is – just what I said folklore it was not real real truth and so as we've started to pull more barrels from Bernheim we've realized that you know depending on what age you're pulling in Mashville and such we're pulling some really great whiskey from down there Um, some really great whiskey that we've been super surprised about and so because of the folklore that had kind of been generated and so I think we're trying to look at you know when we're thinking about our whiskey portfolio, do we have to have the style of whisk- Rick houses that we have today? Can we use others? Can we move barrels at some point? Moving barrels is expensive too. There's labor in that. So that's always something that to kind of consider, but are there more efficient ways in which we can do that? In fact, we have a big initiative at Heaven Hill right now that we're working on called The Digital Transformation of Our Whiskey. And it's really about collecting much more data on a barrel-by-barrel basis and trying to use that to understand how we can be more efficient with how we put our whiskey away, how we pull our whiskey out, and what our warehouses look like in the future. Again, that's relatively in its infancy stage of us doing it, but we've collected data on barrels for a long period of time, but we're now expanding the amount of data we're collecting on a by-barrel basis so that we can go in and understand as you all said we have one mash bill many brands that come from that mash bill and we're trying to get a certain taste profile every time most of that has been done through just the knowledge and experience of people who've been with us for 30 and 40 years well, they're all starting to say, I've loved this gig for 30 or 40 (laughs) years. (laughs) Time to retire. Um, I'm happy to come back and taste whiskey for you anytime to make sure it's good quality. Get Mike Sonny,
3: keep showing up. (laughs) That's right, he does. He keeps showing up for the
0: tastings only. That's right. Uh, And um, so what are we gonna do with this whiskey? You know, what are we gonna do when we lose this kind of institutional knowledge? And so we think being more data-driven will not only help us have more consistent whiskey and also help us figure out some more of those unicorn whiskeys that with really unique taste profiles, but will also just help us be more efficient in what we're doing as we go forward. So that's a pretty
3: yeah, interesting space. You have yeah. 50,000 barrel warehouses all the way, you know, my, I live on old Nazareth road and there's some heaven Hill and they, those probably only own like 5,000 or something. Mm-hmm. So you have a vast, you know, and it's, I guess it's probably too young to tell how the 50,000 barrel warehouses age versus like the smaller ones, you know, that are in Deedsville or this. Or that.
0: Well, we we started putting those up in I don't know.
3: I guess has it been four or five years? it's been Again. four years. Gosh, and, yeah, it by. does fly. It <laughs> does. I feel like they just got done. It's like <laughs> well, they're, they're already, they're, they, did. They're, they already put the footers for the next one. <laughs> oh, they're no. building the next one. Yeah,
0: it did just get done, but we started the first ones about four years ago. So the first one gotcha. as we filled it uh, right away. So that's about I think they I think the whiskey in there's between four and five years old right now. And we've tasted it. Um we feel really good about it. I mean that location is really made for prime whiskey. Oh, when it's you, windy when as you, hell there. Right, right. right. Uh,
3: it's like the windiest <laughs> spot in, in Nelson County. So yeah. in, It ironically, like up at Willett is very windy and stuff ages really good there. And like at that reserve, it's so windy and it seems like the windier, the better, you know, for aging.
0: Yeah, for sure. That age, that, that airflow coming around those barrels is super important. And so we, that is, it's up on a hill. So it gets all that wind. Um, It gets a lot of wind. And so the airflow is really good. So we've been excited from the start about those. We felt really good that those warehouses are going to produce some amazing whiskey.
1: I feel like I got... But go ahead. Well, I was gonna. Can I? Can I ask a question? Yes, you can. I got too many. I I know this is amazing. So the other thing, I I, we want to come back in a year after you collect all that data and probably have somebody on to kind of talk and look through. Because for me, as being a tech guy, that fascinates me in figuring all that out. But one also thing that you did mention was labor now what you're doing as well as you're creating sort of a, a trickle effect so you're building this you need i think i saw, saw roughly need 100 employees to be able to do this there's mean more employees that need to be building warehouses more employees that need to be building barrels and does Bardstown have the labor and the workforce to be able to support something like this going forward
0: yeah I think we think it does. Um, I think that between Bardstown and the greater kind of the only reason area yeah, The the yeah. reason
1: I asked it is because coming out of the pandemic, I mean we saw sure. it was it's been it's been really tough all around i mean I, Every every company that I talk to, like, we're hiring, we're hiring, we still can't find people. And it's it's like, is how long is this going to continue?
0: Yeah. We've seen a little, like on the visitor center side, we've seen a little relief in in that it's not 100% yet, but we definitely are seeing more candidates actually showing up for interviews, which is a key piece, because that was happening for a while. But we're seeing more candidates show up and more candidates um, looking for positions. So that's good. If we think it's heading in the right direction, is it there yet? I don't know. But I think we feel pretty good about the workforce that we need to support kind of these areas at this point. I think that we have, A, we have a workforce in Bardstown that is amazing. They have like supported us. You know, we've had obviously some struggles over the last year, but in in general, they have been like an amazing support system for us as a business. And um, we have some new people on the production side that have been driving some amazing changes at Heaven Hill to really make sure that we have the right amount of focus on, on our bottling lines and being able to do some unique and very like different things to make sure that we have enough labor and enough workforce on all of those bottling lines to produce the bottles. Cause that was a big issue coming out of the pandemic was just having enough workforce for all of that. And then, as we look at what the workforce is needed for the future, I think you know we've been able to pull now in the industry. The industry is very popular, so that helps in, in Kentucky. Like people like want to work in the industry. You walk in, in
3: that room, you, you
1: see the bottles on the wall. <laughs> right, yeah, right.
0: <laughs> you get I'll, excited. I want to do this. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's true. I mean, I've I've heard of people that are moving to Kentucky just yeah. to go work in the bourbon industry. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so that that is a big draw just to be in the industry itself. Um, and we have people. I, you know, the people I love are the people who are willing to come in and learn it from the ground up. Like those are the best people that we, we can get. And so there, we have a lot of people who've done that over the years. We've had people who, I mean, Jody is a great example of somebody who has worked his way up from the top to the bottom, Jeremy Fletcher. They all kind of, they were worked in the barrel, on the barrel side of the business in the warehouses, kind of managing and leading some of that. And then moved over. I mean, Jody's now our artisanal distiller downtown with some of the learning that he's had from our master distillers over the years. And Jeremy's kind of in a similar position where he's done that through the year. So we, those are the people that like, they live and breathe heaven hill when they're done because they've like been through every part of the process and can talk about it. And that's really the kind of people that we want to have come into the company. Um, And so we're seeing people come into the industry. So I think from that perspective, that puts us a little bit above, definitely above, I'm sure you like me, anytime you go to a restaurant today, you're kind of like, are they going to be open past seven? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so I think that puts us in a little bit better position.
3: Uh, so one last question, and I'll let Kenny, if we have any more, but uh, no, 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 you're, you're good. You were talking about um, the tourism side was helped you like get bullish about the new distillery and this and that. What are, what, what makes you bullish about tourism? Cause I don't know what we'll probably get you know, this is twenty twenty two. What around a million visitors now? What are you forecasting? Like, is that going to get increase? Is it going to stay the same? What do you What are you seeing? Yeah. In that regard,
0: um. So yeah, we're we're forecasting increases in terms of tourism for sure. And I think the thing that has been um, most exciting is the amount of people coming in from out of the state of Kentucky. So that's always been a big factor in our tourism, but as we continue to kind of see tourism flourish, we're continuing to see that number increase over time, the amount of people coming in out of the state. And so, you know, they're taking all of that learning back with them and then telling more people about bourbon. And so that is critical and key as we move forward. I think another piece that's critical and key for the growth of the industry is the direct to consumer piece, which hasn't opened up as quickly as we anticipated it would. Um, I think that could blow the the doors open for the industry as a whole, it's going to come with a host of other problems. But (laughs) I think that it has a opportunity there that is, we haven't even like scratched the surface of yet. Like it's just, that's a good
3: point. Yeah. Yeah, Making it much easier for your customers to access your products, you know, where, where it can be challenging now, maybe not so much for your main staple brands, but your 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 special, exactly. you know, rare offerings and whatnot. Yeah, we've been big advocates of direct consumer shipping for for
1: a few years now. Yeah, but nobody and listens. Yeah, well, You <laughs> can <laughs> <laughs> only get so far in a bourbon podcast. That's right. But yeah, you're right. It you're not going to be shipping Evan Williams, but you do have the opportunity to take all this arsenal of barrels and fun projects that you have and be able to kind of create and release this to a, a Heaven Hill group of advocates or people that are out there that just want a subscription or monthly box or right. all of something that sort of stuff.
0: Right. And so that that is that's an area that I think just is just ripe for explosion that hasn't even been something that we've been able to like take advantage of with really the exception of the state of Kentucky. There are other states, but they're just um, it's too small. They're just too small. Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to
1: have a whole operation that has to take care of it and the logistics yeah. and it's just, so it just it's doesn't, not worth yeah, it. It doesn't make
0: sense yet. So um, hopefully as that starts to grow and we see more changes in legislation uh, across the country, we will be able to see a whole different avenue to get into front of consumers. So that too, when we think about like that crystal ball effect, yeah. all of those things start to factor in of like there's still opportunity here. Right, we I'm, just got to,
3: understand. I'm getting on start, board. to believe, feeling start to better. believe. I'm feeling better.
0: <laughs> I believe I believe. <laughs> All right. Can
3: you, you ready go double up our debt? <laughs> I don't know about that. I
1: don't know about that. I'm, I'm already leveraged pretty far. In that yeah, point. exactly. Susan, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today, because this was a, a great opportunity to be able to get you in front of our listeners, because I think that you have an incredible story and history and being able to talk. I mean, we, you told one story. I'm sure there's a thousand more that you can tell out of your time Yeah, I feel like Nintendo. we could talk for two, like two more hours, at least, easy. But then easy. I'll keep it. I'll stop. We'll have a, we'll <laughs> have a round two sometime and be able to kind of dive into more of those, those stories that you've had over time. But for. A lot of people out there, I mean, this is and it, probably people in the industry are going to be really interested to kind of hear your, your take on this, because I'm sure everybody's dealing and fighting with this internal struggle of how much longer is this going to be sustainable and knowing where you all are projecting is giving probably a lot of people the warm fuzzies to be able to say, okay, all right. You know, and I guess that's another question is you all said, we're going to do 135 million. It was like, wouldn't you say, you know, we'll just start like 30 million. (laughs) Like you just said, like, we are just go all in on this.
0: All in. Yeah. Listen, when we've looked at our projections, we feel like we need this. One of the reasons for this has been we've been cutting so close on production at Bernheim that we don't have an opportunity at Bernheim to do as much exploration of mash bills and different things that we would like to, the headspace is just not there from a production perspective. And so we needed another facility to kind of help us do that. Uh, Did we go, big and go all in. I mean, we don't have to use all that production time. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to produce every barrel if we don't want to, and likely won't because we'll probably be doing more innovation at that facility. And so there might be some changes to line time and things like that, that kind of happen um, from a production standpoint. So, I mean, I, but I think though, as we said, the consumer's exploring, we've got to have new mash bills. We've got to have new ways that we're thinking about our whiskey and to do that, we needed another facility. Doesn't hurt that as we've grown and gotten as big as we are, just to have a second facility in general just helps us in case we have one of those disasters like in 1996, where we're like,
1: Let's ah, not even bring that. what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um, you know, from a reliability standpoint of production, it's not not so bad either. But in general, we still feel really bullish about the category. And and you'll, you're going to hear us say that over and over again. We do still feel pretty bullish about the category. We're seeing other categories get a little bit of lift. Tequila is one that's been kind of, but it's doing it in the same way that bourbon did. And I think they can live together actually, because the trends are so similar to one another.
3: You know, I've noticed that, you know, a lot of people drinking margaritas and tequila seltzers and Palomas and this and that, but I've noticed that all my friends always finish the night with a bourbon.
0: That's right. <laughs> Good Kentucky boys, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Precisely.
1: Well, I'll again, reiterate thank you once again for coming on the show only because it was a pleasure to have you on and knowing your story, your history of projections. I think this has been one of the most fascinating episodes that we've had in a while. So thank you so much for coming in and being able to do this. Yeah, with us. Great.
0: Thanks for having me. We're always happy to help. We're, we love, we love bourbon. So we're happy to talk about it anytime. <laughs> <laughs> <That's all
1: right. laughs> well, I usually close it out saying if, if, people want to follow you or know more about you or get in contact with you, how would you do that? But maybe you don't want people to contact <laughs> you. <laughs> you. Probably go. not. There you go. No, no. There no. you go. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if, if you do want to get in contact or contact us, we'll vet the questions and we'll forward it on or something like yeah, that. And there you can you always go, go to
0: heaven-hill-distillery.com and and fill in one of our kind of inquiries. It all gets back to us. Trust me. We're pretty good about that. We're still... Uh, as big as we are, we're still small enough to to care. So yeah. we're as I was gonna say
1: it's still it's still a small team. We know a lot of people over there, so it's That's good right. good yep. company. But thank you again uh, for coming on. Follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts and your socials, all that sort of good stuff. And you like the show? Leave a review, tell a friend, and maybe as maybe in a few years, and they catch on, and they start hearing about oh, there's this new distiller being built in Barson. like it's not it's the second big distiller that they're doing I mean, like you can hear it back on this episode so make sure you share it with a friend it's the best way to grow the show and grow the category of bourbon as well but with that cheers everybody we'll see you next week